Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. And um, as we come off what I think can best be described as a hangover of race action last weekend, things just got really, really ridiculous. You know, it was almost like watching the very end of um, what was the Molly Ringwald movie with the big house party? With the Asian guy who looks up in automobile. 16 Candles. There you go. It's just like yes. watching the very end of 16 Candles. That's what this week ended up looking like. But first, wait. You've never seen 16 Candles. I've seen that last part. Ugh. Of all of the, the debris and wreckage of the party and people waking up and realizing, what have I done? That was kind of like what we saw this week. was... People stumbling from the wreckage of what happened last weekend, in particular the qualifying, and all of a sudden thinking. Sometimes not good thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Shall we first, let, let's talk about the high. The high. The high, because truly I think this is one of the best radio messages that we had in a long time. <laughs> Checkered flag, Ramon, checkered flag. Absolutely amazing, dude. Guys, listen to me. This is a win for us. This is a win. Unbelievable for everyone. Unbelievable. I don't even know where we finished. Unbelievable. <laughs> the raw emotion in that voice is incredible, and I just love the very end of it. I don't even know where we finished. Yeah. And that is Haas racing driver Roman Grosjean finishing sixth. Yeah, I believe it was six off the top Sixth of my head. Sixth in the first race of the season. In the points, I mean, as we announced last week, they are higher than oh, McLaren, Renault, some of the big boys, Red Bull. <laughs> well, con considering there was a large part, their feeling was just finishing the race was going to be a success. It was a win for them, was to finish. To end up with a fairly sizable points haul, especially after losing one of their cars, mm -hmm. you know, it was a huge weekend. Do I think that this is the level that we're going to see them perform at with any regularly within a season? No, I don't think so. But if you are somebody like Sauber, if you are somebody like McLaren, you know, Renault said that they might be, they might have a chance to sneak in, but they weren't expecting points walking into this. But for McLaren and Sauber to have been so soundly beaten by the newcomer, this should be waving a red flag at them. Well, there's that. But there's also, I mean, as I rightly predicted... Much like the Max Verstappen year of last year, this is the Haas year. We're going to have a lot of press about Haas, and every story talks about how Haas did it right. They entered F1 with this idea of we're going to buy everything we can buy and only have to focus on manufacturing those bits that are required by the FIA to consider it a constructor car. And that is very, very key because there's been multiple cases if you want to call them that or questions to the FIA as to what constitutes a constructed car for F1 and Haas is not just they're riding that line they're not challenging yeah. the line but they are riding that line how much can we buy from an established team to make us viable quickly but the truth is you know if you look at all of the other teams that have launched since oh maybe Toyota or even Braun, and Braun was basically rebranding another team. Um, if you look at all of the other new teams since then, 
the level of success they have not had mm-hmm. is pretty telling as to why that's no longer the route to go in F1. To, no. to turn around and do what Haas did is really the only realistic and viable option if you're going to get involved. And to get involved as a brand spanking new team. Mm-hmm. To take over an existing team, you might be able to manufacture a few more of your parts. Um, but to start from scratch, which is what they did, and don't ever miss that fact. Mm-hmm. They start from scratch. This is the way they do it. And what I'm going to be interested to watch over the evolving five to seven years is how, as they see success, how they decide to start bringing in some of those parts to manufacture and tweak on their own. Will they start to shift the teeter-totter from we are everything from Ferrari we could possibly buy and only doing the bare minimum to be a constructed car? Or will they turn around and say, okay, now we've got our feet underneath me, we're going to take on building this part in addition to our car i I think they've i think gene haas has already said one of the first things that they want to target is building their own chassis their chassis doesn't actually come from ferrari it comes from delara who Mm -hmm. is a known chat i think actually delara is who makes the chassis for indycar um but they want to take on building the and designing that chassis themselves now they have turned around and they have said that while yes delara built the chassis for them it is their design Correct. They want Which to, is key. That yes. is part of the regulations. But what they want to be able to do is take on the manufacturing of that chassis. That's like their first thing that they're they're targeting is to do that. They're always going to buy the engine. It looks like um, I can't unless they find somebody else to come in as an engine partner. Which um, yeah, you look at Honda and that's probably suicidal right now. But but you know. Building an engine versus building a chassis, I could definitely see that. And I'm thrilled to see that they've got a game plan of, okay, this year we're buying everything that we can possibly buy. Next Mm -hmm. year we might buy everything minus one. You know, that kind of a thing. And I'm glad to see that because that's going to make them become a loved team. Because the more you build yourself, the more you become your own team. Yeah. The the fan base tends to follow because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you you become the caterums of the world that, okay, yeah, they're not with us anymore, which is sad, but they had a legacy because they were their own people. Yeah. So I'm very proud and happy for Haas and happy for Roman. I bet he had an ecstatic week this week. You know, he said it, it, it was like a win for them. Mm-hmm. It just it wouldn't be a Formula One season if a team didn't come forward with a boast that just made you go, are are you watching what's happening? (laughs) Are you really seeing this? Did you go to the same race we went to? (laughs) You know, last year it was McLaren and there. Yeah, by the end of the season, we're going to be winning races and on the podium. Yeah, that happened. Um, The latest and, and admittedly, he's shooting a little further down, but. Christian Horner has come out and he has said that he believes that based on the performance that Daniel Ricardo had, because it certainly wasn't Daniel Kvyat's pace, um, <laughs> um, but he has said that based on the pace that Daniel Ricardo had in uh, Australia, he believes that there is a very good chance that Red Bull could be challenging Ferrari this season. 
and not just and, and no and, and I thought it was interesting, not Williams, Ferrari. Well, that's Christian Horner's own hubris. Yeah, I mean they are the number two, and Claire Williams would love the opportunity to gloat yet again that mm. they beat Red Bull. But <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, did y'all y'all talk about that when you chatted this week? Yes, de- definitely. Yeah, we had, we had a long talk. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I know how much you look forward to your weekly chats with Claire. <laughs> sure. Now he does say mm-hmm. that they are ex- that Red Bull is expecting a fairly significant engine upgrade around Montreal. Okay. I don't know if Renault has said that they plan on bringing a fairly significant engine upgrade by Montreal, but he has said that that is what they are expecting, and that's where they should do. Now, granted, at this point, you know, you're you're two and a half, three months into the season, come Montreal, and that's when you're getting your first upgrade. Seems a little odd. Why would you not get this in either Austria or Barcelona, like everybody else? I don't know. Well, maybe. Maybe that's because Renault is rolling out the upgrade in Barcelona, but it won't be ready ready for Tag Heuer until uh, Montreal. Yeah. I don't know. You know, Tag's got to take some time to rebrand it. It takes a while to peel all the stickers off the engine. It does. You know, you got to get the heat gun just right because you don't want to damage the chrome underneath it or anything like that. The dental floss yeah. to run across it. Yeah, you yeah. got to get that. Yes, that the the adhesive that stay you know that's why they they took the branding off ah. weight reduction yes that's it <laughs> the adhesive it's is a weight, weight reduction, reduction. <laughs> <laughs> which speaking of engines and red bull uh helmet marco came out and said that um they actually looked at red bull actually looked at producing an, their own engine as far back as 2014 he said that they had actually realized that that far back that renault was probably not going to be able to get them an engine that was going to compete at the level that they expected it to well this doesn't surprise me in the least honestly red bull competing at the top end of racing for four straight years with sebastian vettel under the old engine structure they should have been thinking about making their own engine back then, really. Because to be a customer and winning like that meant that it was they were easily picked off by a competitor with the same engine. But the problem is, is that Red Bull is really and truly, as much as they've got gobs and gobs of money that puts them on the same level as Mercedes and Ferrari... When you get down to it, they're not a car manufacturer. No. They're they're... a drinks manufacturer. For them to get into building their own engine without having another deal to do something with this engine, whether that is, oh, I don't know, maybe send it over to Aston Martin or to whomever, it's not a great investment for them. And that's one of the things that, that Helmut had said was that, you know, they looked at it very quickly but found out it wasn't for Red Bull. Um, it was when they had the first test in 2014 they were looking at it and investigating it. And he says that there are other companies in within about an hour of Red Bull's ancestral homeland in, in Austria that were making engines. 
Um, he says that there's enough know-how, but the cost and complexity of the whole thing, they're not talking about an engine. They're talking about a power unit, which is far more complicated. And the engine, he feels, Helmet feels that these engine regulations are wrong. He says it's too expensive, too engineering-driven, and doesn't make the sound you need, and the driver is more or less a passenger. The costs are enormous. We are talking about 250 to 300 people just to develop such an engine, and we don't know how long the reg- regulations will go. And that, I think, is the bigger issue right there. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you're going to invest that kind of money, you know, need to know that you can amortize that over 10 years. Now, the other issue that Renault has, or excuse me, that Red Bull has is this deal for this tag-branded uh, Renault only good for this season right they have to come up with a plan yeah so he doesn't helmet marco insists that red bull has alternatives in mind Mm -hmm. we got to remember here they had alternatives in mind last year when they started slagging renault and all of those evaporated because they weren't real but what he says is we have options we won't be without an, an engine next year we have an option but we want a competitive engine, one that you can run at the front that you can win with. There are still discussions to equalize power within 2% or bring the so-called independent engine in again. Let's see what happens with the regulations, and let's see what development the engine we are using, which is a Tag Heuer, is doing this season. So he's not completely ruling out that, well, maybe we'll keep find a way to keep this deal alive with Renault somehow. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, should we go back to The Hangover? Okay. Okay. Let, let's play some clips from Sky Sports, is from the overall reaction post-qualifying, because I think it sums up things really, really well. Those that have come to cheer on their heroes can't see them, and, and there's nothing to, to cheer on. Got to change. Don't like it. Not acceptable. It needs putting in the skip. The new qualifying Walmart is pretty rubbish. Well, I think firstly we should apologise to the to the fans and the, the viewers because that's not what qualifying you know should be. And the crescendo was the bloke getting out of the car. Yeah. And the irony is he could have actually waved his own second flag. Yeah. He was on pole position. Do you remember that crazy qualifying idea they had back in 2016 that only lasted one race? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the commentators were brutal about it mm-hmm. across the board, and the. Team principals and the drivers universally hated it. And, well, maybe. You know, we did hear some very, very public comments coming from Christian Horner and Toto Wolf. Um, we had Christian Horner, well, actually, let's say Toto Wolf said he thought that everything would be ratified, done. They approved this unanimously. We're, we're, there, none of this, this junk in, in Bahrain should be done in a few days. And Christian Horner said, you know, I don't think the whole qualifying thing was handled all that well. He says, I don't think we covered ourselves in glory with it. The important thing is to learn from it. Any change, of course, has to be fully considered, and I don't think with qualifying we'd fully understand what the consequences are. The intention was there for all the right reasons. It just didn't achieve what was intended. And that seemed pretty well and and even later on in the day the more comments that we got coming out of the meeting it seemed promising again we've got christian horner from on sky sports after the meeting before the the race did you go in there and just agree straight away to change qualifying or did you actually have a a chat about 
maybe tweaks you might be able to do. But you know, what? we're usually a pretty dysfunctional group, but for once, <laughs> there was uh, absolute unanimity in the in the room that you know we gave it a go, and the intention was well-meaning, but uh, it didn't work. And thankfully, I think everybody recognised that that what happened yesterday wasn't right. wasn't right for Formula One. The fans, you know, it's to nobody's nobody's advantage. Um, and so the unanimous decision was to go back, you know, to what we have had uh, the last few years from the next race. Okay. Um, is there a thought then that we won't touch qualifying again? Not necessarily. I think, look, for this year, it doesn't make sense to, to mess with it. And I think, you know, we're, we're tickling with the wrong areas. You know, it's like introducing a second ball on the pitch in football. You know, yeah. you, 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 the, the problems aren't in the format of qualifying or, or what a Grand Prix is. I think that, um, you know, 2017 represents a great opportunity with different regs. And I think that's, that's the opportunity it should be used to closen up the racing a bit. Well, you're right. But I'm still asking the question to myself, and many of the fans are asking as well, whether you and your fellow team bosses actually know what the fans want, which is closer racing. Absolutely. And, and, and getting rid of some of the complex aero to allow that. I think the problem that the teams have, because we're all competitors, um, all the teams are looking at, you know, what is their own competitive situation? How can they protect their competitiveness? And I think... You know, it, you've got to look beyond that. You've got to look at the bigger picture and say, what should Formula One be? What do the fans want? It's got to be the, uh, primarily a drivers' championship about drivers racing wheel to wheel yeah. in exciting, flat out, aggressive, loud, fast cars. Yes. When you say it like that, it doesn't sound that easy. But then when you try and get 11 teams to write that down on a piece of paper, what it should be, that's where it goes wrong. And I think that's where really it should be taken out of the team's hands. And the promoter and the governing body should say, right. This is what Formula One's going to be. Yeah. Either sign up or do something else. Okay. So it sounded good. It sounded like we had un unanimity, unanimity there. It sounded like definitely we were going to get change and things were going to get better. Function out of a dysfunctional body. And then about 12 to 24 hours later, the cracks start appearing. Uh-oh. The first up was came from Williams. Now, Williams there, and, and both Pat Simmons and Claire Williams came out before this qualifying happened and said, you know, as much as we're hearing some negative comments going in, and it, people don't, we, we've got to try it, we've got to see, we think there's some good potential here, it's worth taking a look at before everybody slags it, let's make it happen, and, and, and let's see how it works out. And then, of course, it was this fiasco. Well, about 12 to 24 hours later, Williams director Pat Simmons came out and, and spoke, and, and he does say that the team voted to go back to the old system. However, more time should have been taken before that decision was made. He says there was absolutely no need to make a decision on Sunday at all. When you're being accused of jerking your knees, surely that is the last thing you do. As a team, we suggested, as we had to make a suggestion, keeping the new format for the first two parts of qualifying and then reverting for the third one. We also tried hard to make the point that we should be open to a further change if necessary, but not in haste. But the majority vote was to go back. Simmons added that he felt the knockout format had the desire of desired effect in the first and second parts of qualifying. Then the cracks get a little wider. Because, as you'll recall, when we talked, what was it, two weeks ago about how the rules were made, once it gets past the strategy group, then it goes to the next group, mm -hmm. where Pirelli gets a say. Okay. And Pirelli's sporting director, Paul Henry, 
basically came out and said the same thing. Hey, we haven't really looked at this close enough to see what the effects are and whether or not it makes sense to go change it. We're not sure that we're willing to go and approve this. And remember, it needs a unanimous vote. Mm. So now Pirelli is saying, yeah, we're not so sure that we want to go and make this change. So then we got word on Friday. Stupid qualifying is back for Bahrain. In its entirety. In its entirety, unchanged. This is what we're going to. That's what happens when you require unanimous votes to move forward. Well, that's... You know, I'm not clear as to how this worked. Um, But what they have said is that the belief is that, going back to what what Pat Simmons said, the belief is that taking a knee-jerk reaction, the elimination system that made its debut ahead of the Australian Grand Prix weekend should be given another chance and then be thoroughly reviewed ahead of making potential tweaks. So the thought is we need to take a measured approach. Mm -hmm. Never mind all the fans universally going, it's crap. Right. Yeah, throw out measured, fix it, or just go back to what worked and then sort out your measured approach after the fact. But what what gets even better is that Bernie came out and spoke. Now, you remember, Bernie's response in the evening after this, qualif- that this qualifying that happened in Australia was he described the entire experience, his words here as, quote, pretty crap. Mm-hmm. His words. So now he's come out and he has said... They're going to do what I proposed, which is leave things as they are for this race in Bahrain. After that, we will then have a good look and decide whether what was done was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. Does it need modifying? Does it need scrapping? And he goes on to say, which we know is bogus. This was an FIA idea in the first place. So I've said to them, we'll support whatever they think is the right thing to do. But as nobody knows what the right thing to do is, we've said we'll stay where we are and have a look after this race. Then, two races in, we'll see, as it was a prototype, what was right or wrong. The teams didn't understand what they were doing either, which didn't help at all. Oh, I think the teams very much understood what they were doing. And I would... my. Internal conspiracy theory says that the teams pulled those drivers off the track faster than they would have normally because they were proving a point that this was crap. Now. Well, I've got one a a little more on this. We know that, not surprisingly, Mercedes and Red Bull were against keeping this. Oh. Somehow their vote has been, was changed. But they did come out and, and stuck with the, yeah, we, we really didn't want this. Mm-hmm. We want, And they didn't want to modify it. And I think that's probably why we ended up going this route is because the FIA was pushing and probably gave them the choice of either you keep this qualifying or you modify it, and they wanted it to go away completely. So their compromise was they didn't want to deal with the modification at all, so this is where they went. Recognizing this whole disaster. The Grand Prix Drivers Association released a letter um, calling for an overhaul of the sport's obsolete and ill-structured rulemaking process. Shouldn't really be a huge surprise considering we had Sebastian Vettel, Fernando Alonso, and Lewis Hamilton all suggesting that 
the sport's going the wrong way. And especially for somebody like Sebastian Vettel to come out and say something. Even Lewis tends to pull his punches and say, you know, this is what we're doing. And, you know, I think my job is to drive the car. I'm going to go out and drive. Even for Lewis to come out and, and, and even a hint that he didn't agree with what was going on, kind of big. Oh, yeah. Um, but it says in the letter, essentially, the drivers have come to the conclusion that the decision-making process in the sport is obsolete and ill-structured and prevents progress from being made. Indeed, it can sometimes lead to just the opposite, a gridlock. This reflects negatively on our sport, prevents it being fit for the next generation of fans, and compromises further global growth. We would like to request and urge the owners and all stakeholders of Formula One to consider restructuring its own governance. The future directors and decisions of F1, be they short or long term, sporting, technical, or business oriented, should be based on a clear master plan. Such plan should reflect the principles and core values of F1. Shortly thereafter, Bernie Eccleston came out and agreed that with the drivers that the sport is in jeopardy and something needs to change. Where I think that Bernie is going, knowing Bernie and his strategy and the words that he has said is, if the drivers are pushing to change, this is a way for me to get more power and get more control. Because that's his problem. Is he doesn't like that he doesn't have the control he wants. Correct. So, I you have some... some You've done some digging and found some stuff. Well, I have to give some credit to our crack research assistant. Okay. Um, more on him later. Um, but our crack research assistant has dug through the archives of all things. His bookcase. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> and has found improvements to F1 from long ago. Yes. I'm going to share a few of them. Okay. One, and see if any of these sound familiar. All tracks are fitted with sprinklers around the edges that come on at random points during the race. Hmm. Mm. Whoever won the last race starts at the back, and whoever came in last at the front. Everyone else is in reverse order in the middle. Should make for an exciting race or a massive crash. Hmm. No traction control, no flappy paddle gearboxes, no super comp computers. Get rid of engine regulations. If you want to run a massively turbocharged four-cylinder or a B16 or a radio aero engine, you can. Hmm. Interesting. All drivers are paid 8,000 pounds a year, but they get a 1 million pound bonus for every championship point. Okay. And probably something that harkened back to an, a very early version of Formula One, but a revival of a rule of the spare car. Mm. Spinning into the gravel and getting stuck is always a bore. But if the driver can run back to the pits, they can jump into the spare car and get out there for another crack. So let me guess. These proposals were put forth by a certain, certain poorly quaffed <laughs> evil genius. No, it's not bad hair burning. It was not. It was not. 
In fact, these suggestions to improve F1 came from the big book of Top Gear from 2009. Written by Richard Porter, who was a writer for Top Gear. Exactly. And he is also the man that writes Sniff Petrol, right? Yes, he is the man behind Sniff Petrol. And the book that came out earlier this year on the production of Top Gear, the whole history, and on that bombshell. Ah, I read that book. It was pretty good. It was. Any Top Gear fan should read that book. But our crack research assistant, who, you know, is lovingly referred to as The Boy, heard us discussing the changes to qualifying and said that that sounded very familiar to him and produced the <coughs> the 2009 annual of the big book of Top Gear, which I am lovingly showing off right here yes. for our studio audience. It, it's just like Top Gear on the telly, except in a book. Exactly. <laughs> um, so now we know where we now know the these playbook. ridiculous ideas are coming from. Exactly. So if you wanted to know what the next things Bernie is going to suggest, he would be looking at sponsorship deals. Well, what we have is that, you know, if Bernie has been gets control like he wants, mm -hmm. we have come up with our predictions and our ideas for what Bernie would be working to morph Formula One into. It's well, something it's about we, the show. It's, so it's, we want to give the bloke and the birds a version of what would improve the show to Bernie. Yeah, Ber Bernie's suggestions. We're calling it Cutthroat F1. I think this makes great sense. So for starters, at the end of the final race, you will have the, op the drivers will have the opportunity to compete for double points by go driving through a loop-the-loop. -loop. Excellent. The FIA, or excuse me, FOM and Bernie will announce a partnership with NPR's Car Talk to introduce Car Talk's patented Wheel of Misfortune. Now, there will be some changes to it. It will, instead of being just the one wheel of mechanical uh, difficulties and problems, this would be two. One would be with driver's numbers. The other would be with random events. And at some point during the race, the wheels would be spun. And where it would land, drivers would be... Um, hampered with some form of mechanical misfortune because who would not want to see Lewis Hamilton being forced to retire from the race due to a broken motor mount? Or, even better, Kimi Raikkonen being forced to finish his race with a mattress strapped to the roof of his car. With the one arm hanging out yes, to hold on to th it? Yes, that is the requirement, is, is that you must hold it down with one arm. Um, the winning driver of a race must be replaced by Pastor Maldonado at the next race. Ooh, Pastor did say he would return to F1. Yes. Um, any team that wins three races in a row must replace the non-Maldonado-driven car with a DeLorean because it looks fast but actually isn't. That would keep things fair. Yes. Because Bernie is all about fairness. Um, the latest change to qualifying was that it would be a 100-yard sprint race for pole. There's no cars. It's just the drivers running. Well, Jensen Button would always have pole then, right? Maybe. Quite possibly. Um, a special perk just for Paddock Club ticket holders. Ooh. Paddock Club ticket holders will be issued paintball guns and 10 paintballs each to be used once per race to target any pit crew or driver as they are serviced during a pit stop. One lucky Paddock Club fan each race will get an OC-filled pe uh, pepper-filled paintball. Now, if you shoot a pit crew member, would they get taken out of the pit crew? Um, it depends. Only if you have that pepper-filled 
paintball. That's the point of it. Um. Everybody else, it would just, you know, it would hamper, it would be painful. You'd possibly catch them in a visor. But if you get hit with that pepper paintball, that's probably going to take you out for a while. Mm. Okay. Bernie may decide that one team at any one time during the season must replace all their tools with ones made from aluminum foil. Excellent. Perhaps we've watched too much Cutthroat Kitchen. Possibly. <laughs> one team per race will be required to replace a pit lane mechanic with James May. In an effort to control costs, wind tunnel and crash testing will be combined. This will be done by dropping the team's car from the back of a plane flying at 10,000 feet. Sounds like an excellent test. One race will be declared a free race. This means that teams must only use the existing parts in their part partsmen. They cannot produce any new parts. That means even if the part does not work, they have to use it. So save those broken wings. Now, I believe they would get an unlimited amount of duct tape to use to hold it all together. Ooh. Perhaps they'd have to find different colors of duct tape so you could tell them apart. They couldn't just all use the same silver stuff. Yeah. And then finally, in an effort to better connect with the fans, all broadcast contracts will be terminated. Fans watching at home will instead have to subscribe to the exclusive F1 Elite Club package. Now, for the low cost of just $800 a year per household member, including your pets, fans will enjoy 4K Ultra HD 3D video of every practice, qualifying, and race session live. This will be done via a dedicated fiber optic connection to the new FOM Broadcast Hub. Please note, installation fees for fiber optic link from your home to Hyderabad, India, bribes to VJ Malia to ensure connectivity and audio commentary during each session are not included and require additional fees. Unfortunately, video will only be available during the regularly scheduled event times. There will be no access to race or event content after the scheduled event end time. I think that that is the single best idea. <laughs> I mean, 4K ultra high-def coverage of all uh, the F1 event. That's fantastic. In 3D. In 3D. Can you imagine the Alonso Gutierrez crash in 3D? Well, that's fantastic. And merely would cost us oh, the equivalent of your annual salary. Yeah. <laughs> now, to... to uh, Again, you know, one of those things that nobody's asking for, but they'll, they'll happily give it to you. I have heard that actually watching F1 in 3D is supposed to be a very cool experience because of the fact that, you know, one of the things we hear when it comes to, like, Spa and stuff like that is that the inclines at, and, and stuff and those change of elevations, you really can't see and get even in HD. But when it's on 3D, you actually do see it, and it oh. is noticeable. Because Sky did a... One, I think it was two or three years ago, they had aired a test session in Barcelona in 3D. Mm. Are, is anybody airing in 3D? No. Oh. Well, that doesn't help us. Now, does I, it? Again, let's remember, it. this is something that Bernie would want to deliver to you that you're not asking for. Well, yeah. But he can charge you gobs of money to do it. Exactly. But I don't have to pay for it. So we have more news. We are not done. This show just, we just keep giving here. We're givers that way. Apparently. <laughs> so uh, Bernie has, uh, he, he gave another interview this week. To, oh, uh, no. This time Somebody to shut the, that man up. <laughs> this time he did it to, uh, to the Daily Mail in an interview and said that um, 
the contract from Monza, unfortunately, still has not been ratified. Now, he, on one hand, he says that he's not planning on adding a race to replace them and would be willing to go down to 20 races. Uh-huh. Um, he also freely admits that while they're looking at other countries, he is not willing. This is surprising. He is not willing to go to 22 races. He thinks 21 is the absolute max. Well, the teams will revolt because every race costs the teams money. It's it's just not a matter of packing, you know, an extra suitcase. They're yeah. basically whole cars that have to get produced. And he he admits that that this is killing the teams and 21 is probably about the max that they can pull off, which means that if they were to bring some another race in, something would have to fall off. And his attitude is that um well, you know, I don't think we have to have a Monza or an Italian Grand Prix. Somebody once told me that you couldn't have a Formula One ra- f- have Formula One without a race in France, but we do. Mm. And there have been a lot of classic tracks that people have said that there's no way that Formula One can survive without them that are gone. Now, to give you an idea of what I think the that's a little frightening to Silverstone. Personally. What the issue is, um, Formula Money put together a chart of just average and highest race hosting fees from 2007 to 2016. Okay. And, you know, as you'd expect, the, the, it's an incline up. That's not surprising. But the way, especially the highest fee has gone up, is incredibly dramatic. So in 2007, the highest hosting fee paid for a race was just under $40 million, with the average being just under $20 million. 2016, the average cost is probably about $35 million to host a race. But the highest cost, brace yourself, just under $90 million to host a race. It's ridiculous. I mean, I think that's more than, like, Manor's entire budget. It's more than several teams' entire budget. It's ridiculous. And, And... I get it. Formula One's not a charity. There is no, a lot of money to be, that needs to be brought in for the sport to operate, for everything to, to go like it is supposed to. And being a popular sport as it is, there, there should be a premium. But this kind of premium, it's ridiculous. This is why we have, you know, T-shirts in the F1 store that cost $55, $60 on the cheap end. Okay, let's just imagine for a minute. What's the average attendance of a F1 race in a, in a weekend? 100,000? It depends. Maybe total for the whole weekend, and it depends on the track, too. Because, like, Austria has a smaller attendance, and China has a smaller attendance, but Austin is, you know, 100,000 a day, so... Okay, so let's use Austin, just because I want to make the numbers to be reasonably fair. Okay. If you had a $90,000 fee, and you had, let's say, 450,000 people came through the gates for the four-day weekend, mm-hmm. that's a little over 100000 a day. 
Your ticket per person has to average $200 to make $90 million. Well, but you've also got to factor in that, you know, paddock club tickets at, at some of these races are well over a grand and no, no. sellout. No, that's $200 per day per ticket average. And and I think because of the way prices are structured, they don't have a problem hitting it. I just don't see that most racetracks are making, and that's just to break even at ninety million. That's mm-hmm. not hiring one human to park cars. That's not hiring one person to turn the lights on. That's not hiring one person to sell hot dogs. That's well, not hiring anybody to manage the whole thing. That is literally to have people descend on your track. But also, let's be clear that we know that is the highest. I am guessing that most tracks pay nowhere near that. I'm betting that there's probably only one track that is paying that kind of money, maybe two. My guess is that Azerbaijan is paying that kind of money, and I'm betting that it's an issue where profit isn't a concern. They've got the oil money and the government backing that they can do it. I think Russia is also paying a lot of money. I don't think they're paying anywhere close to that. But I'm betting that either Bahrain or Abu Dhabi is paying close to that kind of money. I could totally see where they're paying that kind of money. But I think that when you start to look at it, even on average, would you say the average was for 2016? 35 million? Yep. So we still take, and we know that the 400,000 number is high. Mm hmm. For a, a race weekend, and that's one person one day. Yeah. So that same person can come for four days. You still need to make about a hundred dollars per person to pay that fee. Okay. Yeah. That just pays the fee. Then you've got all of the operating costs on top of it. So even if you said that your operating costs were half again, the extortion fee. Which they're probably more like double. Well, you, but you've also got to realize that a lot of those operating costs are getting handled by the $25 parking and the $18 hot dog and the $7 soda. and. But even still, the, you have to look at how much it costs a family or a human yeah. to show up at the... I mean, that's what the managing person at Silverstone... Mm-hmm. He went after and he said, I've got to know what it's going to cost for a family of four to show up at my track... For the weekend. And And make it a value. To make it a value. And he dropped the price and he had unprecedented results. And guess what? They made more by selling the tickets for less. Because because we all, every human being, looks at the budget and says, I've got a family of X size. How much is it going to cost me to take all of us there? We did it when we bought the IndyCar tickets. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we still have to figure in what is our lunch cost and what are what are these other costs? What's the gas going to take to get down there? It's a whole weekend experience. And when you're paying those kind of extortion fees for the event itself, you're already starting in the negative. Now, I'm not saying that Bernie doesn't deserve to make some money. Don't get me wrong. I'm capitalist to the end. He was at the right place at the right time, and he deserves to make money. I just think that he gets... He's extortionistic out of it. He forgets that in order for the sport to exist, 
People have to be able to afford to come to the sport to watch it. People have to be able to afford to actually, you know, subscribe to the various channels now. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But you have to... It has to be something that people can come to and participate in. You have to be willing to build your fan base. And that's where I think Bernie has truly gone wrong, is that he has approached it strictly from a business for so long and looked at ways to make money off of it for so long, he has forgotten that where that money comes from and that he needs to nurture that and he needs to protect that as well. Because if you do not get the fans, if the fans lose interest and the fans walk away, it doesn't matter all the deals that he has negotiated, they're all going to fall apart because they're not going to be able to sustain themselves. Right. When all is said and done, it's not about the drivers and it's not about the constructors. It is about the fans. Because mm-hmm. when all is said and done, that's who's paying you. Yeah. You know, look at your ultimate con- customer and that's who you have to pander to. So the other bit of news that came out of this exchange with Bernie, um, I guess back in 2014, Bernie had dropped a few hints that uh, he was talking to some investors in Las Vegas about hosting a race there. He's dropped a little more information. Apparently, F1's resident track designer, for good or bad, Herman Tilke, has already been to Vegas several times, and they have plotted out a street race course for Vegas. Down the Strip? Part of it would, in fact, be down the Strip. It would not be like the race, I think it was in 92 um, or 82, in the parking lot of Caesar's Palace. Okay. <laughs> um, I would assume that part of it would go through a parking lot, but it would, in fact, go down the strip at some point for part of the race. Wow. Um, he does say that a contract has been sent over to the investors. His exact words, Vegas would be super. We are waiting. They have got a contract. I think the trouble is the pen. The organizer hasn't got a pen. <laughs> Interesting. This is Bernie's words. Now, he says, you know, if Vegas comes along, we will have to think about it. Do we want 22 races or should we get rid of one? We will see. Interesting. I think some of it is going to be dependent on how much money Vegas wants to pay. Well, how much money Vegas wants to pay, but also what's going on with Austin? Um. What's going on with Austin? What's going on with Silverstone? Mm -hmm. Because the track is apparently, even though we have heard that there's no rush to sell, it appears that that deal is progressing, even if it is slowly to sell it to Land Rover. Right. Um, How that will work, we don't know. Um, But that could trigger something. I don't know. And I don't know how I feel about a Vegas race, really. Well, apparently... The Mexican race has been so successful that the organizers are already considering a crowd capacity increase for 2016. Really? Yeah. Um, He says that tickets have been on sale now for, er, excuse me, uh, the president and CEO of the event production giant CIE, who puts on the race, Alejandro Soberon, uh, has come out and said that tickets have been on sale now for three weeks. And they're already at 80 to 81% of their objective for this year already. As a result of that, they're considering increasing capacity a little bit over last year. He says there's no doubt in his mind that it's going to be another solid sellout. 
Wow. Yeah. The question that really needs to happen now, especially in the second year of the race, as they're talking about bringing on capacity, is what is the knock-on effect going to be to Austin? Well, There's I think been that- some concern about that. Are these going to be truly new fans, or are they further going to poach Austin's fans? Well, and I think that's the big concern. I mean, those two races are very close together. Mm-hmm. I quite frankly see that there's going to be some percentage of people that are going to want to do both. Because you could do it Yeah. by, you know, taking a week's vacation. Um, and, you know, do you take the South American and Central American fans and send them strictly to Mexico and not to Austin? Because why travel further? Mm-hmm. I mean, there were Mexican fans that came over to Austin to see the race when it was just in Austin. I can't imagine that they would want to do that now. I think it probably depends on how far you are from... The border? Yeah. That and how challenging the border is to cross. Well, yeah. And that could be the other issue. Yeah. there. I mean, there's other political issues going on, too. The other important piece of F1 is the broadcast rights. Yes. What we know, NBC's sports contract to carry Formula One was supposed to expire at the end of this year. Now, Bernie has agreed to a one-year extension. Okay. We know that. What is going to happen after the end of 2017, that's now the question. We don't know whether NBC wants to keep it. Bernie has dropped hints that possibly Fox would consider taking over again. Uh, Now, as you recall, um, what used to be the Speed Channel is now, I think, Fox Sports 1. Speed had it for years and gave it up when Fox decided that they wanted to change the focus of the channel. So that's the question is whether or not Speed would want to take, or actually I should say Fox Sports would want to take it over. Or whether NBC wants to keep it. I got to say, you know, while well, we've said it many times, we don't think NBC has really been a better alternative than what Speed had, especially considering how much NBC promised that this would be a great new way to give us Formula One and there would be all these neat innovations and all this other stuff that was coming, and we didn't get Jack. You know, the only innovation that they actually gave us was that they run the commercials in a separate box and continue to show you the screen. But because of that, you can't actually see anything. Now, one of the things to keep in mind about the U.S. market, and this is a reason why, you know, there is this half-hearted push to increase F1's interest in the U.S. with Haas and possibly a Vegas race, is that the U.S. market is actually, television market, is extremely low. Um, the U.S. audience is lower than Russia, which had 15.4 million viewers in 2014, and Brazil, which has 79.2 million. Uh, markets in Europe are all several times bigger than the U.S., with 27.4 million viewers in Germany and 27.6 million in the U.K. Well, you know, quite frankly, you got to lay the blame on that in very specific places. 
with the rise of Lewis Hamilton, who loves the U.S. Well, Lewis has been a big draw in the U.K., too. Right, but Mm -hmm. he loves the U.S. He spends quite a bit of his off time here. He would be the ambassador to the sport, and he's appeared Mm on, you know, TV and in the, the national news in various and sundry ways. That's awesome. But when you say, oh, okay, well, there's this thing, and this guy is kind of popular, and maybe I'd like to go check it out. And what you're faced with is the coverage that NBC Sports offers. You got to really ask yourself, why would you continue to watch that? It's not like there's robust coverage. Well, it's the only option, though. I understand. But you have to be committed to it to want to sit through that coverage. Honestly, in the U.S., just to watch F1 at all, you have to be committed to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of races that are aired at odd hours, either in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning or something like that, as a U.S. fan, you truly have to be committed to it. So, Bernie, you, know? you should listen. U.S. fans, we may be small, but we are mighty because <laughs> we are committed. We give up more to be a fan. It's not convenient for the U.S. to be fans. Again... Bernie doesn't care about the fans. Well, that's and if you want further evidence of of how Bernie does not care about the fans, as you recall, last fall, when we got word that BBC was dropping their free-to-air coverage in the UK and that Channel 4 was taking over, Bernie had said how important it was to him that in the UK in particular, free-to-air, that Formula One was available to watch on a free-to-air provider of some sort. Oh, it was let me guess. vitally ch- important to him, to him. Let me guess. He's changed his mind yet again. Apparently he has, because it was just announced this past week that after 2019, there, an exclusive six-year deal was agreed to with Sky Sports for live coverage. Sky Sports, which sits behind a paywall. I'm so glad that that was vitally important to Bernie to have free to air in in England. Now, now, to be fair to Sky, because you do have to point this out, Sky's coverage, we've watched it a few times. I would venture to say that their F1 coverage is probably the gold standard and the very best English language coverage in the world. It truly is outstanding with the number of folks that they have there, the analysis that they have there, the amount of coverage going into each. I mean, Australia, there was an hour and a half of pre-race coverage. Then there was a solid hour and a half to two hours of post-race coverage that they do that just about every single race. The number of former F1 drivers who do all of their coverage and all of their commentary, they've got more than anybody else. They know this stuff really well. They provide it really well. And, oh, by the way, starting next year, if you are a Sky Sports provider, for the first time ever, you will be able to watch Formula One via Sky Sports in 4K Ultra HD. And if you needed another reason to watch Sky Sports, they have Damon Hill. (laughs) I just thought I'd throw that out there. He's not quite as good as David Cothard, but... uh, His pants are not nearly as tight. (laughs) 
that is that it, you are in fact correct. Damon Hill's pants are not as tight as David Cothart's pants. But you know the thing is, we lost the German Grand Prix, and Formula One has admitted they have seen in Germany and in France and in several other countries they have seen a decline in viewership after the coverage was moved to a pay format, mm-hmm. and it was not available in a free format whatsoever so why in england which is supposed to be such a great strategic partner and is truly the home of f1 it was born at silverstone why would you do this other than the fact that you don't care about the fans i have one word for you okay as to why i can explain everything that we have talked about this entire podcast as to why they do anything in f1 it is a simple word. It is greed. Yeah. Short-sightedness, too. That's Greed is always short-sighted. By definition, greed is short-sighted. It is, what can you give me today? Yeah. And forgets that long-term gain sometimes means that you take a little less today, but you will gain far greater. But greed can't can't do that. You mean you shouldn't promote your your sport just to the folks who can afford to wear Rolexes? You shouldn't promote your sport to just those people and forget about the fact that there are young people coming up that are going to stand at the the they may only fence. Yeah, they may only buy general admission tickets, but they'll do it every year until they die. Right. What is the value of the kid that's eight years old that his dad's taking him to Silverstone general admission that then literally buys a general admission ticket for himself, his future children, until he's 80 years old? What's the value of that fan? Is that the same? Is that truly that much less than the paddock club attender that goes to one race every five years to be seen? Mm-hmm. and doesn't really care and isn't invested? And where are you going to get the next Lewis Hamilton that watched the sport, who craved to follow his heroes, that he watched through the fence? You know, F1 drivers aren't all going to be born in Monaco. And F1 drivers aren't always going to be the sons of champions. I think it was Jolian Palma. In uh, and Sky Sports spoke to him again. They're they're really good coverage. I think it was Jolian Palma that that Sky Sports spoke to. Uh, talked about watching uh, Fernando Alonso and and Jensen Button growing up through the fence, and the amazement that now here he is sitting in a drivers meeting with them and going out to and getting to race them face to face. And yes, that was a very cool thing. Sadly, Julian Palma is the son of an F1 driver. He is. And, and that, that, that's one of the other things that truly you lose on the NBC sports coverage because they are so far removed from the race. And that the coverage that BBC brought and Channel 4 brings and Sky brings with everybody who's there is that you truly get to see how tight and how close-knit this community is and 
Sky had done a piece on Jolian Palma with Martin Brundle and I forget who the second former driver was. And they're sitting and watching Jolian drive a, a very wet track in a Renault. And they look at each other and goes, you know, it seems odd to see him here as a Formula One driver. I remember pushing him around in a pram. It's... <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, they raced and were contemporaries of his father. Yeah. My favorite part of that interview was actually they got a moment with Jolian's dad. Mm-hmm. And they said, so what advice have you given your son about this? And he says, I am so far out of the sport. The sport has advanced so far without me that I gave him no advice. Yeah. And in a way where you see the contrast to Josh, 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 Josh. Josh Verstappen and Carl. Yeah, stage dead. And Carlos Sainz Jr., Sr. Jr. Um, we haven't seen Carlos Sainz Sr. around. And keep like, in mind, Carlos Sainz Sr. is still racing oh. actively in WRC. Which I think is so cool. <laughs> which I do think is very cool. But you see Yas there, you know, coaching his son and, mm-hmm. and pushing and coaching. Driving and, him to the track. Driving him to the track. <laughs> making, you know, making sure he shows up on time. Yeah. All of those things. And you then contrast that with Jolian Palma's and his dad going, I'm here to support my son, but I can't give him advice because the sport has advanced without me. Yeah. And I mean, that's a big contrast between the two. But yet, all the drivers that we're seeing right now are sons of drivers. Mm-hmm. Where are we going to get the Lewis of the world that comes up through Stevenson? Stevenson. Steven Inch. There it is. Steven Inch. My tongue is twisted, so on that note, I think... Hey. One other thing that I heard this week, interesting statistic about Rio Harianto, the first Indonesian driver. Oh, are we going to do that now? No, we're not, we're not going to do it very often. And, but this was a very interesting statistic and probably says a lot for what we can expect from him. In his GP2 career, he won two races. Congratulations. In his entire GP2 career, he only led four laps wow and won two races <laughs> i'm not expecting great things from him <laughs> well you know he does have points on his license before the, the season really ever yeah, started so you know even pastor didn't even pull that one off but all right on that note just remember you can uh, check us out over on the podcast if you have ideas for how if Bernie Eccleston was given full control of the sport, the changes that he would implement, please leave them either on uh, the Facebook page or over on the website at theblokeandabird.com. But I think on that... And should you hear any of these things used by Bernie, know that you heard them here first. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, we'll cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.